Thank you for downloading our podcast. This Christmas season, we consider Luke's testimony of Christ. Luke sets out to write an orderly account so that his friend Theophilus can be certain regarding the things he has been taught. What is Luke fundamentally teaching us about the significance of Christ and Christ's entrance into history? Well, as we make our transition to the Christmas season, I looked at different series I've done in the past. And one series I haven't done is just a whole series through Luke. We've looked at the Christmas story from Luke and Matthew and compared them. But I thought this year we'd basically look at Luke's gospel. And looking at the timing of it, we'll be able to talk about the birth narrative of Christ, where we'll have to do uh, two Luke sermons um, in about two weeks as I have it mapped out. Then we'll be able to hit the birth of Christ right around Christmas. Uh, and then we'll do one more week uh, in Luke's gospel. We'll go back to Hosea because Hosea is actually getting rather encouraging at this point. So we've kind of slogged through uh, the place where Hosea beats up the covenant people uh, to where Hosea is going to bring the promise of redemption. So I thought it'd be appropriate to go from Hosea back to Luke's gospel and then do a series in Luke after Hosea. And so when we look at Luke's gospel, and and this is sort of serving two purposes, and we're serving the purpose of starting a series in Luke, and we're also serving a purpose of thinking about Christ as our Messiah, and the significance of who he is as a begotten, the only begotten son of God who enters history, being the ultimate champion who rises to victory. And as I mentioned, many times we, we think of uh, John the Baptist being sort of an insignificant figure for, for history and an insignificant figure for Christmas. And that's rather unfortunate because hopefully as we go through these chapters leading up to the infancy narrative of Christ, we really understand the significance of John having the spirit of Elijah Uh, that spirit of reformation, that spirit of of life, uh, that spirit of bringing life from death, and these sorts of themes that you can think of in Elijah's ministry for Israel as a lot of times being sort of the sole spokesman for God, at least how he identifies himself, only to find that that's not necessarily the case. But nevertheless, as we get back to Luke's gospel and we think about the significance of this, And we think about Luke uh, presenting John entering history with the Messiah right around the corner. It's important to understand the anticipation of this for the Jewish people would be that immediately after the moment of John, you're going to have judgment, you're going to have glory, you're going to have an entrance into the fullness of what Jerusalem is supposed to be. So that's the anticipation, and that comes from Malachi chapter 3. So what is going on in Luke's gospel? How is it that we, 2,000-some years roughly after Christ has walked this earth, are still here, meeting together in churches, Gentile people, sojourning through this age as, as Christian sojourners with our eyes to heaven? Has the promise of God fundamentally failed? Why is this man so important? And why does John really matter? And how is he even important for us today? And so as we consider this, we'll see Luke communicating with purpose. 
Uh, we'll see Luke then communicating the purpose of what he's doing and what he's setting out to do. And lastly, the irony of being powerless to communicate. And so let's begin then with communicating with purpose in verses 1 through 4. Uh, Luke's introduction uh, to his gospel is rather short. It's not really long and drawn out. He, he's a, a doctor who seems to be the one that if you're terminally ill or have something going on, he's going to be rather direct uh, tell you what's, what's happening. And so you sort of get that sense with, with his gospel account, don't you? Uh, that he's one who is laying out for us the significance of what we see in the canon, the canonical tradition, uh, that this man who we've uh, said and, and reason is a doctor for a few reasons. We think of Philippians 24, or Philemon, excuse me, Philemon 24. I should spell these things out in my notes and not use abbreviations. But Philemon uh, 1 verse 24, or 24, because it's only one chapter, he's identified as Luke, the faithful doctor, or, or the faithful co-worker with the Apostle Paul. So we know that this man has traveled with the Apostles. We know from Colossians 4 verse 14 that Luke is identified explicitly as a doctor. So we assume uh, this man would have been well known in the very early church, and it's beginning, and he would have been known as one who traveled with uh, the apostles. We don't know exactly what he did. We don't know if he funded their mission. We, we don't know if he preached. Uh, but whatever the case, we, we know he has credibility, that he's a firsthand witness. He's seen what's transpired, and this is also why we say he's a doctor, because the apostle Paul identifies him as Luke the doctor. So as we consider this man and, and who he is and what he's doing, that he's a man who uh, is continuing to, to compile something. So he's noting that he's not the only one who has done this. There's many who have done this. They've desired to compile a narrative of things. And so Luke is, is telling us a story. He wants us to know what has been accomplished. He's an eyewitness. He's heard the testimony from the apostles. He's heard preaching. He's heard the implications uh, of the mission of Christ. And so Luke, as he is here as an eyewitness doing research, he has a purpose. And so when we look at Luke's gospel, we, we shouldn't just see this as some uh, chronological presentation of Christ, just being factual. But Luke is presenting factual reality of who Christ is, but he's also building a theology of who our Christ is. And so, like any writer of the New Testament, as they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, they're, they're not just writing a story to write a story. They're, they're crafting a theology. They're, they're, they're telling us a story about the significance of Christ and the advent and covenant history which is why when we looked at the Belgian Confession, dealt with this with the canon, we noted that the Belgian Confession teaches us we receive the canon, we don't declare uh, the canon. The canon is self-attesting, as the Belgic says, and the Spirit bears witness to its truth. And so Luke, as he writes this, he's being very upfront. I've witnessed things, I've sat under preaching, I've researched and this is what I'm writing, and, and I'm writing for a purpose because I want you to know something. So we say, okay, well, why is he writing this orderly account? 
Why, why is he compiling this? Clearly this is presented as, you know, he's got his outline, he's got his organization, he knows where he's beginning, knows where he's ending, knows the, the miracles he's going to include and the significance of Christ's mission. And so this orderly account implies that it's not just Luke haphazardly keeping a journal of his travels. Uh, this is something where he's taken his notes, he's done his research, he's interviewed people, witnessed things, and now he's writing a carefully crafted narrative. And so we have to read Luke's gospel along these lines. We need to start asking, what, what is his theology? What, what is he presenting of Christ? What does he want us to know about Christ? But he's writing this gospel for a particular purpose. He's writing to Theophilus. Now this name literally means lover of God. And so some people speculate that Theophilus is just to any recipient of this gospel because anyone who would receive this gospel and read this gospel is a lover of God. It's possible. I'd argue it's not likely because he identifies Theophilus as most excellent. Now this isn't Luke uh, basically kissing up to an individual or trying to prop someone up. This title seems to be a title of some official. And so it's not Luke trying to uh, take this official, bribe this official, flatter this official, but it's more Luke taking the official's title and writing something for a purpose. He wants this man to have certainty. So now we, we don't know who Theophilus is. He's mentioned in Acts. He's mentioned in Luke. The implication is this may be an official who's wondering, I've heard these Jewish people talk about some Christ. I've heard some Gentile people talk about some thing about this Christ guy who's been raised from the dead. I've heard some stories. I kind of believe he might be someone significant, but I really don't know how significant, right? And so Luke seems to be saying, listen, Theophilus, I want you to understand who this Christ is. And I want you to understand the significance of this Lord Jesus Christ. So this may be a man who's sort of seeking out Christ. This may be a man who's considering and weighing different stories and rumors he's heard and and wants something tangible. Or this may be a man who is truly a believer and Luke's just trying to bolster his faith. And so you can see in Luke's gospel how it covers all these bases, right? So there is a sense in where this gospel goes forth, and as Luke writes this with a purpose, it isn't just for Theophilus, it's for all of us. And if we're honest, all of us can be in these different phases of Christian life, can't we? I mean, there can be times when events happen and we wonder, gee, is Christ real? Is he really present? Uh, other times we say, boy, you know, these miracles, how does that really work? I mean, is, these seem rather extreme. What's the purpose of them, right? And so Luke is writing this gospel for us as we ourselves in our Christian life may even ask these same questions and may need our faith bolstered, encouraged. And so this isn't something that's just for some first century individual whose name means lover of God. So that's the first thing we, we want to understand. There is a purpose to Luke's gospel. He, he wants us to understand he's laying out a theology of Christ 
so we understand our Redeemer. Now Luke jumps right into the infancy narratives. And he spends a lot of time developing the infancy narrative of John the Baptist with his parents. And so notice the purpose that Luke's communicating here to us. That we have here this scene. We, we have the setting of it. Herod. So we're placed around Herod the Great, most likely, uh, as this is presented. So we're looking at about 37 B.C. to 4 A.D. Uh, would be the time of Herod the Great. So that's about the time uh, where we're hearing this narrative. And as he writes this narrative, we find that there is this man named Zechariah. He is a priest in the line of Abijah. We find this line, 1 Chronicles 24, verses 1 through 6, uh, that we find there's an overabundance of priests, and so David divides the priests into different orders. Uh, so these orders will serve at different times. Now what would happen as we go back and, and read the history in Chronicles is there's lots, lots that are cast uh, for these different divisions to have their priests go and to offer the, the sacrifice. Now this isn't always going into the most holy place, uh, but this would be the honor of being sort of the, the high priest functioning in a sense where one can go in and be all alone in the presence of God in the holy place, not the most holy place, but in the holy place, and offer the sacrifice or the incense. So there is that setting that, that we find. So the lot falls on him. This is his duty. Now the other thing to note when we hear that he's elderly, this is a once-in-a-lifetime chance of a priest. This, this doesn't happen every year. It doesn't happen every decade. Some priests will go their whole priestly career and never have this honor. And so everything is providential that is being set up here. It's very clear. The lot falls on him. This is his chance in a lifetime. And so you, when, when you know that as a backdrop, it kind of makes you chuckle a little bit, not to say that I'd be any better than Zechariah, because you have no idea what to expect when you go in the temple. And then you, you hear of this vision, you think, man, that guy was like, why didn't anyone tell me? You know, that's kind of what, in my mind, where I go when you walk out, of here, like, sure, it would have been nice to know. But anyway, so this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity is the point here. So as he is, is his priest, we find that he's also one who has a wife from the daughters of Aaron. So what this is telling us is right here it's setting up an elitist priestly line for, for John the Baptist. You have one where you can trace his order, his lineage, uh, to a particular priestly line that's been divided in 1 Chronicles 24. You have his wife who is tied to the daughters of Aaron telling us that this priestly line is pure. Right? They, they, are, they haven't compromised anything. But we find that uh, as we hear this, not only as they are pure, we have Luke telling us who they are. And he tells us two key words from the Old Testament that describes them. They are those who are righteous before God, which means in, in terms of following the, the law of Moses, they, 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 are not, they haven't compromised, they're, they're, they've done a good job, they're pure. And they walk blamelessly. So these two words that characterize their lives, their marriage, their home, means that they consciously follow the living God. 
And so Luke, in, in setting this out as a narrator, using his omniscience, if you will, being able to peer into the secret things of their lives, there's nothing hidden. There's nothing secret. There's no secret scandal behind the scenes. And as you get to know them better, you're like, oh boy, uh, we didn't know this was going on. Luke's saying there, there's no scandal. You, you can dig into their lives. You will not find a thing that's going to concern you. Now we say, well, why is that so important? Well, he tells us in verse 7 a potential scandal. They had no child. Which means, as we hear Luke report this to us as a narrator inspired by the Holy Spirit, we know they are blameless. There's no secret issue going on in their life that's hidden from us. But the community is going to take, say, Psalm 127, where there's the assurance that one who has multiple children, where their quiver is full of children, testifies to faithfulness, testifies to being blessed by God. But that's not this priestly couple. They do not have children. And so the, the point is the community, especially as we get down to verse 25, is looking at them a little cross-eyed saying, I don't know what's going on there, but there's something secret because they have no children. God has not blessed them, therefore God is not with them as he is with others. So that's the implication in the community. And that's why it's important at the end you have Elizabeth saying, the Lord has taken away my reproach. Now when we think about these individuals and as they do their, their task, we have Zechariah entering into the temple. And as he enters into the temple with a lot falling upon him, we have him on the right side of the altar. Now again, the, the placement of this seems to be somewhat significant. He's not on the left, or the angel appears on the right side of the altar as Zechariah goes into the temple. So as Zechariah is in the temple, in the, in the holy place, so basically other priests may go in with him, they would leave and leave him alone in this room. Now again, just being alone in a room that's uh, kind of big and, and mysterious is already fearful enough. I think any of us, we can remember being children, being in a place that's a little unfamiliar uh, and, and letting our imaginations go wild. So already you're, you're kind of on edge, right? Your guard's up, you don't know what's going to happen. And then you have the angel appear to him on the right side of the altar. Now, as I mentioned, this is an important placement because it's not the left side of the altar. The right side of the altar, when you think of this in the Old Testament language, this is another subtle cue in Luke's storytelling ability. The right side means you're in a proper place before God. You're walking on the right path. You're walking in the correct way. And so this is not an adversary to Zechariah. This is one who's friendly, coming from heaven, one who is there in his presence. And as the angel is there, the angel being on the right side of the altar would also place him between the altar and, and the menorah or the lampstand. Remember when we went through Zechariah, we talked about the menorah that continues to burn, right? The menorah was something where the priests would have to keep it lit because it's a symbolism of God's spirit being with the Lord's people. So there's significance there. And so with the angel being between the altar and menorah, it's a presentation of God coming uh, to this, this man, this priest, to deliver a significant message. 
And it's a, a message that communicates by implication in the placement of the angel, God being with his people, the sacrifice being offered once for all between the menorah and the altar of how one moves from death to life is sort of the picture as Zechariah would most likely be a cross from this. So he's looking through the altar at the menorah to an angel. Now many times when we think of an angel, we, we think of them being rather unimposing, uh, just sort of like these sort of skinny individuals. But when you think of the imagery of the angels in, in Daniel and how they stand up, and you think of Elijah seeing the heavenly army, these are imposing beings. I mean, these are, are beings that fight demons. I mean, think about that. Hand-to-hand -hand combat. And, and you think of that presentation in Scripture. These are not creatures that we would think of that if all of a sudden are in our presence, uh, we're going to have an urge to hug them, if you will, or see them as cuddly. And so you can understand Zechariah not only sort of being uh, concerned, being in this room alone where he hasn't been before uh, by himself, seeing this imposing being that's most likely glowing with heavenly glory, standing there before him. And that's where you almost hear the comical statement, do not be afraid. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd probably have my knees shaking by about this point, not understanding what's going to happen to me if I'm going to walk out of this okay. But he says, do not be afraid. In other words, I'm not here to harm you or to judge you. And when you hear that, I wonder what the consolation must be when you process this reality. This being who stands before me rather imposing glowing in heavenly glory where Moses has this glory and, and Israel can't even look upon the face of the familiar prophet because the glory is so intimidating. You imagine this, this creature before you glowing in the same way and telling you not to be afraid. And then you wonder, well, well why is he here? Notice what the angel says, the Lord has heard your prayer. I mean, these are things we, we can skip over. And, and again, prayer is one of those mysterious things that, that I still do not fully comprehend. And it's not that I doubt it. It's not that I'm saying we don't do it. It's not in that sense. It's more I, I don't comprehend it in a sense of, why does God care? I mean, we're little earthlings. We're little creatures who, who rebelled against him and told him to get out of the Garden of Eden. And yet, you find so clearly in Scripture that the Lord actually hears our individual prayers. This can also be an echo back to the Exodus where the Lord reveals to Moses, I've heard the cries of my people, right? That the Lord, we think, is, is absent. He's in heaven. That, that there's no connection between heaven and earth. Right here, the angel is saying, Zechariah, the Lord has heard your prayer, which means that this barrenness has bothered Zachariah and Elizabeth. And, and we don't know why. Maybe they're sick of people saying stuff behind their back. Maybe they're sick of the community looking at them in a slanted way. Or it's probably they just want to legitimately have children. And they desire this. We, we don't know. It could be a combination of those things. But the Lord has heard his prayer. The Lord understands what's going on. And so when, when you hear this, you're, you're understanding that this, this being 
is not just any being, but, but this is one who comes from God. So right there, Zechariah should process and say, wait a minute, how does this, this individual know what I've been praying for? How, how does he know how persistently I've prayed this? How, how can this be? So right here, it, it lends credibility. And he delivers this message that they're going to bring about the ultimate deliverer. That, that they're going to bring about the ultimate prophet who announces the deliverer, right? They're bringing John the Baptist. So the, the reference here of this man having the spirit of Elijah coming and they're going to have this child who enters history is a very significant event. Malachi 3 prophesies that there is one who comes before the day of the Lord preparing the people. So the great announcer or the great herald who goes before the king, we can say, well, it's just the heralds. No, the herald is announcing the king is coming. So in Malachi 3, uh, you have this prophecy of, of how there's a one who goes before the Lord. This one is going to have the spirit of Elijah, the spirit of reformation, the spirit of power, the spirit of life. He's going to call Israel to the Messiah. So he, he's, he's the one who gathers and assembles God's people, preparing them for the king. Now we have this other requirement that he is one that when he goes in the spirit, he's not to have the strong drink. Uh, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and he's set apart. So the language here is an echo back to what you find uh, with Samson with the Nazarite vow. The difference is, this is a man who truly is going to be separated from God's people, as we discover, but he's also the one who truly brings about reformation, preparing for the Messiah, being not the, the judge that Israel deserves, as we've seen with Samson, but as the one who announces the arrival of ultimate redemption. And so when, when Zechariah witnesses this reality and he hears this, there is this, this marvelous thing that's going on. Not only are they going to have a child that they have longed to have, not only does he peer through the sacrifice seeing the life-giving uh, menorah that pictures the Spirit, not only does he look upon a heavenly messenger, but he hears a glorious story. The reality, the promise that he will bring forth a son who announces the day of the Lord, preparing for the great king himself. And so, right here, you, you would think, this is a great place to stop. But he's human, like all of us. And so we find that he ends up being powerless to communicate because he does what all of us tend to do. Rather than saying, this is good news, what does he do? Well, how do I know this will be true? Right? So we ask that question that you sort of gasp and say, ooh, that doesn't always end well for God's people. Well, we do have an echo back where we think of Abram doing the same thing in Genesis 15. And the answer given to Abram is get the animals. Well, the imagery there is something that's rather frightening for Abram because he figures as he cuts the animals in half, the Lord's going to say, now you walk between the pieces. Whereas Abram is preparing the animals in his vision, you would imagine Abram saying, I had to ask, I had to ask, I had to ask. But he sees something marvelous, doesn't he? 
And what he sees is he sees the Lord passing between the pieces of animals in the place of Abram. And so this, with an echo back to that, you think of the barrenness of Abram and Sarah. You think about the, the theme of having life from death as you have here, looking past the altar to the menorah. You, you think about the barren couple who are blameless. It's nothing they've done wrong, but yet the Lord's going to bring about life. So we see those parallels. But as the Lord has already presented uh, the reality that he will walk between the pieces of animals, taking the curse upon himself, there's something that happens to Zechariah. He is not able to speak. And as he remains speechless, it means that he is one who is truly to understand that the Lord is the one who will do this. He is not to tell anyone about this. So this becomes sort of an ironic thing, isn't it? You have this father who brings about the herald for the king, which means he can speak, he can announce, he's going forth like Elijah, proclaiming the goodness of God. His son will speak, but the father cannot. Now, another tension in the story that we may not uh, see as being so significant but Luke takes us outside as Zechariah has this interaction with the angel. He sees this reality. He knows that uh, there's a reality of what the Lord has promised to do. The people are outside the, the temple. Now, the significance of this is something we can miss. You see, the priest would go in, offer the sacrifice, he would come out of the temple after offering the sacrifice or the incense and he would pronounce Aaron's benediction upon the people. And so the people are waiting for the priest to do this task and it's getting awkward is sort of the implication of what Luke is saying. Like they don't know what's going on. I mean, you think about the implication of this. Here's a man who uh, by the lot goes into the temple a man who is barren has not had a child, so there's a little bit of question there for the community. As he's in the temple, he's taking a long time. One wonders, do we have to go in and get him? Uh, has he died? Did the Lord judge him? Uh, what, what's going on? And so you can wonder how the crowds are beginning to interact and start speculating about what's going on here. He should have been done, should have come out of the temple. What's going on? But as Zechariah walks out of the temple, they recognize something's different about the man. Clearly, he's not dead, but he can't speak. And so they, they reason that as he cannot speak, he must have seen a sign. Something happened in the temple that he cannot describe and he cannot share. And so he's one who, as we find this old priestly order, looking past the sacrifice, looking to life, recognizing that he cannot speak to this situation. It's his son who must broadcast the reality of Christ and the advent of Christ that's taking place. It's not this man who's going to do this. And so you, you have the reality that he is the one who has to go home. Somebody else has to, or most likely somebody else finishes the duty. But we're basically left at the conclusion of this temple scene with no blessing. Now, that's something subtle in Luke's gospel and his writing as he writes this orderly account. The no blessing implies 
that, that the worship's still, still there. It's not concluded that the end point has not come at this point. How does Luke end his gospel? Remember the orderly account. He ends with Christ bringing his disciples outside to Jerusalem or outside Jerusalem as they meet. And as they meet, what does Christ do before ascending into heaven? He raises his hands. The implication being Zechariah does not close uh, the Old Testament canon, if you will, or he's not the one who confirms this word. His son doesn't even confirm this word. His son broadcasts this word, announces this word. It's Christ who ultimately confirms this word, as he is the one who gives a parting benediction prior to going to heaven as a conclusion of the service, if you will. Not Zachariah's service, but Christ's service to confirm the very promises of God. Drawing a contrast here in Luke's gospel then, Zachariah, Elizabeth, pure, walk blameless, really nothing that when you dig into their lives you're going to find something controversial. No skeletons in the closet is Luke's point. And the reality is that as you have this status for them, as Luke presents it, they cannot bring forth a child in their own power. Telling us that even as one is blameless and pure under the Mosaic order, one cannot bring life. Life only comes through Christ Jesus. The Messiah is the subtle setting of this gospel account. Elizabeth the one who has walked blameless, disciplined herself, walked orderly before the Mosaic law. What does she praise God for briefly in these verses? The Lord has removed my reproach. She did not do it. Zechariah did not do it. His priestly service did not do it. Only the Lord is the one who has accomplished this event. And so the reality here then is that as Zechariah ironically is speechless, his son will announce the coming of Christ. But it's so that the service cannot be concluded, as one only finds their conclusion in life in Christ. And so in conclusion then, when we ask that question, why is this man, John the Baptist, so important? Why, why does this matter? Why is this orderly account so significant? Well, it's significant because as people try and pick apart uh, the contradictions allegedly in the gospel accounts, you need to understand there's a theological purpose that the gospel writers are, are doing. They, they have a point. They have a thesis. There, there's an argument they're making. There's a case they're making for Christ. And what Luke is setting the stage for is to remind us that it's not the Mosaic order that brings life but it is only Christ Jesus who brings true, everlasting life. The day of the Lord is not a day that's manifested in its fullness with Christ Jesus, but it's a par partial confirmation, ending with the assurance that we have blessing, benediction from Christ himself as he goes to heaven, communicating to us that we are not going to endure in this age in the sense of glory, in the sense of ease, but in a sense that the Gentiles are those who will come to Christ. 
It also tells us that as John is one who brings and calls Israel to the Lord. That means Israel is not, in a sense, we have Abraham, therefore we're at an elite status or we're platinum members, and then there's the Gentiles. But it's rather all need to come before the one Christ. And the Lord is one who has not given up on his covenant people, which should assure us and encourage us that he doesn't turn his back on his people. Even as his people sent him to the cross, he does not turn his back on his people. And so the assurance simply is that John is announcing the arrival and confirmation of God's redemptive promises in Christ Jesus. Let us then go when we think about this time and this season that Christ's entrance into history is not just giving the ultimate gift. I mean, yeah, certainly that, that's there. But Christ's entrance into history proves and establishes that God is not a liar. That what he asserted, what he covenanted to Abraham, he confirms in Christ. That God is the one who brings about his redemptive purpose. Let us find our healing, our cleansing, and our identity. Not in what we do, not in what we are, but in our Redeemer. Knowing that it is in Christ that we ultimately have life that transcends this age. Let us walk in that power and the assurance of the redemptive mercy that we have received in the ultimate Melchizedekian priest. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.